Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome. It's the Magic Book Club podcast. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper. On this week's episode, I'm going to be catching up with the brilliant Bolu Babalona about her brand new book, Love in Colour. I'll also be chatting to Victoria Hislop about her eighth novel, Those Who Are Loved. And we'll be checking in with some of your favourite authors to see what they've been reading over the past few months and just what inspires them to write the great books they do write. First up, let's catch up with debut novelist Bolu Babalola. Hi, so lovely to be here. Um, so how have you got on uh, during the lockdown world? Uh, you know, we've, we've asked a lot of our writers about this. A lot of our writers seem to quite enjoy lockdown. Are you one of those? I mean, I can't say I enjoy it, but I can say that, you know, it's rarely made that much of a difference into my life, to be honest, because I was in essentially in lockdown just before this because I was doing the finishing touches of my book. Um, so now it's kind of like, OK, I'm missing having the option of meeting my friend and going outside but it hasn't made a material difference to my life I'm, I'm i mean i'm still working every day i'm still writing um i guess the difference is now i'm just on zoom a lot more it's um it's also brilliant of you to write us this wonderful book love in color which we'll get onto in a sec it's it's amazing and and it's so generous of you to write this book in between the tweets because i know the tweets are the priority <laughs> The tweets aren't the priority. The tweets are just an escape, you know. Um, if you're if you're at home all the time and you're writing, and I've been on Twitter since I was eighteen, and you just and I've been a writer for a while, you build a community there, and so it's a really nice place just to like have a break and just sit and chat and kind of diffuse that intensity that you've been in for so long when you're writing. Just have a have fun, share jokes, and share banter. Yeah, yeah. It is an intense. It's an intense book. This that you've written. It's about. I mean, it's called Love and Color. It's about love. There ain't no doubt. It's about yeah. love. Um, tell us why you wanted this to be the the heartbeat of the book. Um, because I mean, I've always written about love. Love is love is my beat. Um, ever since I could write, I've been writing stories since I was like uh, I don't know, maybe like thirteen, fourteen, and I, they've always been kind of rom com based or romantic drama y. Um, obviously, there were terrible but that's always been the theme of what I've written so it was just a natural thing for the first book it wasn't really like a question of what my book would be about it would it was always going to be about love mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's struck me as really important about the book as well is and and this isn't yeah it, it's it's so vital because when I think of rom-coms I think of I think of the most uh, monochrome Richard Curtis land mm. and to have to have uh, people of colour as the focus of this book is mm. so fantastically refreshing and so very, very of the moment. Yeah, and the thing is, it's of the moment, but also it's something that should have been happening for a long time. Yeah. And and I really wanted that to be, like, it's for me, it's so wild that we don't see that many um, mainstream, we don't see any mainstream rom-coms with people of colour or black people, and people don't affect that that really affects uh, how, how we see black people and how we see people of colour, because love is a very humanising thing. And if we're, if we're seeing that people of colour shut out of those basic depictions of romance, what is that saying about how uh, society sees people of colour and black people? Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I just I kept thinking of all the you know the stereotypical times when you'd see people of color in in dramas, you know, mm. and, and the representation in dramas. It's got better. There's no doubt that's got better in recent years. There's still a long way to go, a hell of a long way to go. Uh, when you look at things like the, you know, what happened with the Oscars last year and all these things. Mm. Um, but 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 love that seems to have been left behind. That doesn't seem to be ca- that that's got 
that's got more distance to go, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's like, and when we see black people in dramas and things, it has to be about race. It has to yes. be yes. about like blackness as an adjunct to their existence, whereas blackness is infused in their existence, and that doesn't take away from our humanity. And then, of, of course, among that, you have the racialized depictions of uh, romance and how it how it uh, reflects within uh, racialized. Um, racialized depictions of uh, gender because you know black men are like hyper masculinized and so are black women which means that black women aren't seen as desirable in kind of and uh, soft and uh, have that kind of romance accessible to them obviously that's an important purpose of the book but the 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 thing that just leaps off every page is just and you get this every now and again with with writers the sheer joy that mm. the I receive when I read your book. You are having so much fun writing these things. Yeah, I am. That was, you know, a really good... It was really, really, like, a blessing to be able to actually write something that was so full of hope and joy because that's exactly what I wanted to, to capture. So thank you because, you know, the, the world is full of darkness and it's an uncontrollable darkness. It's not this... Things bad, things are going to happen whether we like it or not. But in this world that I can control and cre- create, um, it was nice to be able to, like, carve out some hope and some joy and some light that people might be able to go away with and use um, in their own in their own reality. Yes, yeah, you've really done that. And also short stories, hello, thank you for doing yeah. that as well. Because, you know, sometimes when I drift into a 600-page book, I'm like, because oh, I'm very ADHD, I want the next thing. And mm. it's interesting, it's the first time I've read a short story book since Willi- I read a William Trevor book about 150 years ago. <laughs> so this is my first foray back into short story land, and I absolutely love it. Are you, are you a big fan of the form? Do you know what? This is actually so. The, my, the first thing that I won a competition with was a short story called Netflix and Chill, um, and that's what really got me signed to my uh, TV agent and my literature, literature agent. And then, so I haven't really written a short story since then. But writing that story made me realise how much fun fun the form is. And so, with writing this, it was really kind of a it was a writing exercise for me. It was a challenge and I really think that I grew as a writer in that form because I was writing my first novel when I got um, when I had the opportunity to write this. So it was really like, oh, this is a new way of expressing myself and I love it. Yeah, yeah. The second story um, that I read yesterday uh, mm. what's the what's that one called? Shahrazad? No. Yeah, Shahrazade, yeah. Uh, Shahrazade. It was based yeah, on 1001 Nights. Yeah, the 1001 Nights. Yeah, that's it. And and uh, just the the power of a short story. This is this is twelve pages of of writing, Bolo. And by the end of it, I was I was washed out. I was like, <laughs> I've read a novel. And in this, you know, we've talked about Twitter. In this Twitter bite size age, mm. um, do you think there's a good future for the form? Yes, I mean, I don't. Obviously, I I love novels, and I think there's always going to be space for novels. But I think um, short stories are such a fun way to world build. And just as a writer, it's just very challenging because. You, I am doing the same work as I would, nearly the same work as I would put into a novel for each short story because I'm doing character work, I'm building up the worlds, like fully, I have backstories, I know what's going to happen afterwards. Um, so as a writer, it's really, really fun. But I think also just in this age, it's really nice to be able to have something to dip in and dip out of um, in that kind of form. Yes, yeah, it, they're, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant for that. It's really, um, that really works, especially with lockdown with two small children. I can disappear for <laughs> 15 minutes and come back and I can feel like I've achieved something by reading a chapter. Um, tell us a bit then, Bolo, about your, your writing background because I, I'm reading here that when you were a toddler, you, you used to tear pages out of books and eat them. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's a new one on me. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Um, like, I, I can't really remember. I've, I've always been like a voracious reader. As soon as I could read, I was, I loved, 
I loved books. I've always been around books. My dad loves books. My parents love books. I really loved, I really learned um, how to love books from my dad. And then I remember when I was in school, maybe I was like nine, I think I was nine or 10. Um, I remember we had the English assignment to just write write a short story about a haunted house it was just a regular english assignment um, in class and i remember writing it and just feeling very consumed by it and just loving it and just like the words flying out of me and all i knew is that i loved it and then i got a really really high grade for it and i remember the teacher came to me afterwards and said it was really good that so good that she had to she went around the staff room showing it to the other teachers and on parents evening and she mentioned it again to my mum. And that's when I realised that, oh, maybe it's possible to be like, to enjoy something and also be good at it. Um, mm. And since then, I've just been writing my own stories. You know, I was writing stories on like the family PC in Comic Sans uh, <laughs> since then. And have you kept all this stuff? Or is this going to be in the archives one day? I have some of the stuff. Some of the stuff, I don't know, I have no idea where they are. But some of the stuff, yes, I have them. And they're still in Comic Sans in like size 14 font. Mm. <laughs> 14 what to take up more of the page yeah i don't know i just thought it looks fun yeah yeah um you worked at the bbc as well as a, yeah. a writer's assistant as, a, as an ap as well as an assistant producer yeah um do you think that helped has that had an influence on your writing style is it important um not really i think it was more that it, i learned the technicals about writing and, and i i'm a tv writer as well so i guess it was really informed me in that way but um i think being in a writing was good in terms of my, my loving color isn't very like comedic, but in, but comedy is kind of more more what I do, and it, it really did help me flex my muscles in that way, and okay. learn the uh, construction of a joke. Which shows did you work? Which comedy shows did you work? On? Um, I worked on the Tracy Ullman show. I worked on oh. the Javon Prince show. There were sketch shows, and then um, I pitched a show called Aki and Saltfish, which was. Um, kind of a short form sitcom uh which was really really fun for me and it was about two black girls um in london just living their life and having fun okay okay so are you still are you still working on tv pictures as well at the same time how do you how does that mix in with writing books um yeah i i'm, I'm working on my own show and, and i <clears throat> i was in a writer's room for a bbc show coming out next year i think it's on bbc one or bbc two i'm not sure called chloe um and also going for various tv pictures and film pictures and um, how does it uh, interact with my book writing? I'm not sure how much it does because obviously just generally it's a lot of balancing any kind of work. But at the end of the day, I, I see myself as a storyteller. Storytelling yeah. is my thing. I, I love writing prose as much as I love writing scripts. And so, and they're just different, just different muscles to exercise something that I just love doing. So um, they don't really, and the thing is when I write, uh, my book, like when I write Loving Colour, I naturally see it as something on screen. Like I'm I'm really envisioning it in my mind. Um, so that way it's kind of easy to translate the different forms. Yes, yes, that comes across. These are all, yeah, <laughs> these all have cinematic <laughs> potential. Um, and is that something you've talked about? Are, are, you, are you optioning books like this? Or are you going to try, is the idea to write a novel that gets optioned? Or do you want one of these shorts? Because Stephen King had this, didn't he? One of, yeah. like, various of his short stories. I think, I think The Shawshank Redemption was one of his short stories. Initially. Yeah, I can't say too much about that, but... Um, oh, come on, yes. give us the exclusive. We need can't the headline. Can't give you exclusive on that, because I'm very uh, superstitious. And um, also Nigerian people are very superstitious. I don't know if you know that, but we are. So we don't really? want to talk about, yeah, we don't want to talk about things that... Um, uh, until we're very, very certain and very, very sure. And 
to be honest, I don't really talk about anything until it's out there. And so okay. I, I'm, I'm a big believer of like, you know, when you'll see it, you'll see it. Okay, all right, fine. I accept that, and you're right, you shouldn't <laughs> jinx it. I've, as an actor, I've often made the mistake of telling people about an audition that I've done and has gone well, and then, you know, two or three weeks later, they're like, so did you get the part? And it's always, always, no. Yeah, TV is very precarious. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> disgusting. In which case, we should definitely talk more about your superstitions. What, what sort of superstitions do you have? Do you avoid walking under ladders? Do you avoid black cats? What's going on here? Come on. It's not like, it's not, it's not, it's nothing, nothing like that. The thing is, your people are also very spiritual, so it's things like we don't speak darkness out we don't speak negativity out um like for instance yoruba names are very prophetic and they speak uh positivity into a child's life um like you know this child gave me joy or this child will have a life full of joy those are the literal translations of the name so when it comes to superstitious it's things like protecting happiness and protecting peace and so when um something good happens you don't really want to tell it until it's like certain because you don't want to expose it to negativity that's the kind of way our superstition kind of um manifests itself that's so beautiful as well to mix that in with britishness as well which is the yeah exactly the most, the most we are the most cynical bunch as well <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's a lovely mix and does do, what does the name bolu mean does that have one of those meanings yeah my name means god is great because uh when my parents are quite religious and when um i gave birth there was loads of like complications and i was a very fragile baby and obviously i survived so it's a, it's a praise uh song a praise name but also my middle name means um honor is mine temilola um, that means honor is mine. So it's like names like that. It's just, um, yeah, they just speak about the circumstances of birth and also just speak about what the character of the child, they want the character of the child to be. Okay, okay. So do you feel that, do you feel you have to live up to that then? No, it's kind of something that happens in my life anyway. Like honor is mine. It's something that happens like, you know, my books being out, coming out, you know, like that is an amazing thing. It's something that's mm-hmm. like, it just speaks, it manifests goodness into your life. So your book is out on the 20th of August. How excited are you about putting a mask on, obviously, and going into a bookshop and seeing it in the flesh? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Um, I'm nervous, obviously, because, it's, you know, <clears throat> once your book interacts with the atmosphere, you have no control over it. And 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 also, I'm a perfection, perfectionist. I'm always seeing things that I can, that I can tweak. Obviously, there's nothing I can do now. But... Um, yeah, so it's kind of scary because you are your worst, your biggest, I am my biggest critic. But also I'm just excited for everyone to meet um, my girls, as I call them. Oh, your girls, I love it. Girls. And, <laughs> how do you know when your girls are ready to see the world? Because there has to be a moment. I mean, is it like just you've got to 5pm on that Tuesday and you said you'd deliver it at this time? Or is no. there a thing, you just sense it, like a sixth sense that's finished? I, I still haven't sensed it, honestly. Like, it's just <laughs> that, okay, I guess the book has to go out now. Like, I was editing it up until it went to the printers like officially I, I finished editing it ages ago but thankfully my editor is an angel and so she really indulged me and be like oh can we change this word can we change sniggered to chuckled here yeah. like those kind of tiny things um yeah so I, I don't know if you're ever ready you just have to be able to let go yeah and get ready with the next one do you have the next one lined up do you know what's going on there yeah I was working on my novel when I start when I got approached with this anthology so um yeah, so that's kind of, it's done, but it's not done. It's finished, but I know that it has to be moulded a little bit, tweaked a little bit, uh, refined a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm really, that's my baby. I'm really, really excited. And what's um, that one about? That's a collegiate love story. Um, it's a rom-com and it's based within um, an ACS, which is an African Caribbean society. Um, 
in the university and in the ACS we you have the president obviously and the vice president and everything and but I heightened the world so the president seems like it's, it's like a real president the elections are real elections and and the stakes are like coveted internships um and in the middle of it is a is a love story it's just about um just building a really textured universe that we haven't seen and also seeing black people just being in in love and young black people being in love and having a, a great time and we haven't really seen that a lot in uh, literature yeah it's so great that it's a joyful thing it's a thing of tremendous quality that you're going to make i've no doubt but it's also an important thing as well to give it that purpose is just is such an extra extra bonus um bolo um love and color out on the 20th of august mythical tales from around the world retold it's a fantastic read and uh, i think i think Everyone's going to love your girls, Bolu. I hope so. Thank you. The very wonderful Bolu Babalola and the fantastic anthology of short stories. Like I said, it's mythical tales from around the world retold. Uh, love in colour. It's a brilliant book. Uh, just don't let your kids eat all the pages because you're going to want to read this, trust me. Now, what could be better right now than to be whisked away by a novel to a different country? Well, our next guest doesn't even have to think about that. We caught up with the brilliant Victoria Hislop straight from her home in Crete. My goodness, Jealous doesn't even begin to cut it. Well, I suppose it could have left it to the imagination because half the time I feel I'm in Greece even when I'm not because my imagination brings me here so much. But today I actually am sitting on a beautiful Greek island and I'm feeling extremely fortunate. The good news is lots of British tourists are coming in now, so everyone's welcome. And yes. uh, they'll find the Greeks with open arms if they come. I bet it's been tough for them in terms of tourism, the tourist industry. I mean, we mustn't get sidetracked by COVID, but the, they must be very happy to, to see British people with the with their, yeah. their euros ready to spend. Absolutely. I think it has. I mean, a country that relies so much on tourism, obviously the economy um, mm. has suffered a great deal, but they're all hoping that August will bring a, a change to that. Um, so I know for sure that few people who were planning to go to Spain changed their plans coming to Greece and the Greeks are thrilled and welcoming right. lots of lots of people that perhaps wouldn't have discovered um, Greece unless, you know, the situation had kind of manoeuvred them here. So yes. all welcome. Yes. Well, this, this is what's happening, isn't it? We're, we're veering away from our normal habits and discovering new things and I think yeah discovering actually, new things absolutely new things. I, I do I think one of the the reasons that that your books are so fantastic is because it takes somewhere like Greece which for so many of us us Brits you know we just think of it as a holiday destination and suddenly you show us what's b- beneath the surface and you give us the history and the texture and the depth of these countries and and it, it brings that to life and and um that is that something that's important to you when you're writing these books is that why you're so inspired by that area Yes, it is. I mean, sometimes I feel that sort of little twinge of guilt that perhaps people pick up one of my books, they come and sit on a Greek beach and they go, oh my goodness, really terrible and difficult things happened here in this country back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Um, Mm. But I think it's important when you're a tourist, a holiday maker, perhaps to see a little bit below the surface. Um, I mean, the Greeks are very stoical they invented stoicism really um way back when um but they they're extremely strong they they tend to um kind of ride over all these difficulties that they've had um for example 
the German occupation, which was, you know, a very, very difficult period, tough period in the 1940s, um, mm. and the civil war that they had that followed afterwards, which pretty much destroyed the country. So, I, you know, without sort of, without a happy end or a positive end, I would never write the novels that I do. But I think at the end of every kind of difficult and sometimes tragic period of Greek history, there comes a kind of a, a catharsis, a, a sort of resolution. Um, and in going through all these difficult periods, they, they get stronger. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find it impossible not to go below the surface myself, and that's where I take the readers. And it's so, it's, it is enriching if you are sitting on a Greek island reading a book like this it does it gives everything much more meaning and it feels much more you know plastic fantastic to actually to actually feel and sense the history of what's uh, what's been well, going I, on I think so it always upsets me um, when people come on holiday say to any European country and all the Europe you know the Mediterranean countries have got very rich 20th mm. century history um, and quite often I feel if they go to a place which is just a resort. They literally could be anywhere. Um, and I suppose I do have a small mission with a low, you know, a small M um, to get people to, to look around them and, and perhaps, you know, see a bit outside the hotel gates and look yeah. at the history of where they're staying. Yes. Well, it's already happened with me and I, I'm not even in Greece, Victoria. <laughs> I have read uh, Those Who Are Loved, the, your, your brand new book. And I, my knowledge of, of Greek history during the war was absolutely pathetic. I'm quite a, I'm quite a, you know, a, a big uh, aficionado of World War Two, and I've read a lot of books about it, but I didn't know much about Greece. And in fact, in terms of fiction, this is probably going to, hopefully, this, this doesn't trigger you and annoy you. But it's Captain Corelli's mandolin, and that's about it for me. And that is a that is a rather rose tinted view of the Italian occupation. And what you've got, certainly the beginning of those who are loved is a look at the German occupation, and it's harrowing. It's really, really harrowing. Well, indeed, it, it was. And I think, um, you know, being British, and I think you are too, when we go through our school education, we're very focused on um, the Second World War. My kids all both were. But yeah. it's the Second World War as it relates to Britain. Um, and we never, I mean, I didn't even know that Greece was occupied until probably 10, 15 years ago when I started reading more deeply into Greek history. Now, because we are very um, sort of self-centred in, in the way we look at history generally. So I wanted to see what happened here in Greece. And, you know, the occupation was... I mean, they had a, a, a famine in Athens where tens of thousands of people literally starved in the streets. And, you know, that's just one shocking fact that I had no idea about, although I'd been coming to Greece for 30 years. Um, and it is an extraordinary period in Greek history in that, you know, the, the German, the, the, the um, Nazis came into a country which was already under a right-wing military dictatorship. So I had to go a little bit back pre this occupation to see what country was it that the Germans were coming into. They were coming into a, a country which they might have expected to side with them. So all of that created an extraordinary and kind of unique situation. Um, mm. And then because of the divisions in the country already, which had been developing 
during that dictatorship back in the 1930s, um, there was already a, a, a real left-right uh, sort of division within the Greeks themselves. Um, and this created the sort of environment for a civil war, which broke out within weeks of the Germans leaving. And, yes, um, the vacuum so that, was filled the with vacuum, such violence, wasn't it? So quickly, so, mm. so quickly. And I mean, literally within, within days, the Greeks were fighting each other. Um, and yeah. that, that, to me, as I wrote about in uh, the novel I wrote about the Spanish Civil War, civil war is even more painful, I think, than occupation. Although I'm, you know, I'm lucky. I've never lived through either. But mm. I think the uh, psychological, as well as the material damage done by a civil war is, is an extraordinary kind of burden and leaves scars that yes, a war say. doesn't. Yeah, and I, I know this is over-dramatising it, but the parallels when you, you read about the left and the right and just how entrenched they became, and in, in those who are loved, this is within the family, that you've got the boys on either side of, of, of the ideological divide. And it, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, but I just kept thinking about Brexit, and I kept thinking about... And I, I feel like maybe we've got through the worst of it now in the last three or four years, but I kept thinking that, that divide... and. and God willing, touch wood, it won't end up in the sort of violence that happened to Greece and the civil war that erupted there. No, but did, but you, did you feel the parallels? Definitely, because when I was writing Those Who Are Loved, uh, it was I started the actual writing process just following the, the Brexit vote. Okay. And that was a period when, um, you know, there were divisions within families, within yes. my own family. Um, there was some absolute shock when few members of our family had we realized had voted brexit and as a sort of very profoundly uh, european believer in the sort of the ideals of europe um i found you know there were a couple of members of my family i sort of avoided for a few months we never came to blows mm. we're friends again we've talked it over you know mm. fortunately the british have a very different I think personality type from mm. the Greek, so I don't think we were ever going to pick up weapons. But you, you, you talk about the, the European thing, uh, to the point where, uh, actually, this really affects you, because this is big news. You've joined Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson as a Greek citizen. Tell us about that, Victoria. Well, um, it had been a, a dream, let's say, to mm. acquire Greek citizenship, and I think that was particularly accentuated for me the kind of need or the feeling that I needed it following Brexit because I just sort of dreaded as could have happened with you know the recent Covid um, epidemic they could have said only Greeks allowed in or you know it could have there are situations that could arise where they might ban foreigners Um, Mm. anyway somehow and I don't actually know the entire process but two weeks ago I had a phone call from the Greek Prime Minister what? To actually off, him, yeah, himself actually, on the phone? oh himself on the phone ah, yeah right. I mean it was it, I have to say <laughs> is that it was, how it works? well I don't know now if I ever meet Tom Hanks I'll ask him if he had the phone call yeah. as well um, but yeah I when, there was a woman's voice first of all saying you know I have the Prime Minister for you and of course I knew 
it wasn't going to be Boris Johnson because the woman was speaking Greek. So uh, I thought, ah, this is the Greek Prime Minister. And I had been slightly prepared. A couple of days before, somebody had made a strange phone call from Greece asking if I could have my um, date of birth and my father's name. So I thought, Mm -hmm. something is happening here. Uh, But the actual arrival of honorary citizenship was a huge surprise, um, a great honour, and nothing could have thrilled me more. I mean, in the whole year, certainly, and for many years, I can't think of anything that's made me more ecstatically happy. So um, I have to take an have to take an oath. Yes, it was. It was really um, more than memorable. You know, sometimes even a writer can't reach for the word that would describe this, but. Yeah, so I'm now, at some point over the next month, have to go and actually take my oath, which will presumably, you know, be the final stamp for me. But, um, yes, it's official. I will will be a Greek. I won't lose my Britishness. Uh, I haven't discussed that with them. I mean, I want to hold on to my British status as well. But, um, yeah, to be honoured in that way has been amazing. How have we got here then? How, how have you got to the point where you're writing books and this country is your muse and your inspiration for it? For, I mean, how many of you, are all of your books set in Greece or what's the... Well, a, apart from the book I wrote about the Spanish Civil War, um, everything I've written has been set in Greece. Okay. And why, so why is a good that. question. I mean, Greece for me is a, a fountain of inspiration and ideas and it never seems to stop delivering. And I've always said and felt, and I really do mean it strongly, that if I didn't have an idea that I couldn't not write, then I wouldn't write. So it sounds like a lot of negatives, but I always have to feel compelled. So if I'm writing a book, like Those Who Are Loved as as an example, I thought I've got to write about this period of history and in particular you know the treatment of the communist prisoners on islands of exile Um, and it was almost it sort of gets you out of bed in the morning that's the kind of weakest way to describe it but it really motivates you um, to to study to imagine to travel um, ultimately to get your pencil on paper Um, But in Greece, I just come across so many, so many things that in Greece, they, many of my Greek friends tell me something. And then I think, that's quite extraordinary. That, that just can't be real. I've got to write about it. And they say, why, why, is that, why is that strange? And I say, well, it just, it just is, just from a British point of view, you know, because I am an outsider, although I mm. have this now wonderful... Greek status um, I am still outside I'm still British I still look at things I, I hope objectively so yes. you know most people here know a great deal about the Greek Civil War but they never talk about it it's just sort of whereas I look at it and I say right tell me this tell me that 
what happened, why. So is it awkward when you ask about it? Is it, is it a taboo, much like in France people don't talk about the collaboration? Is it a similar sort yeah, of... Yeah, very similar, very similar. I mean, to say that there are scars left by a civil war, sometimes they're, you know, that moment just before a wound heals up, still slightly open, not mm. quite healed over. Um, and there are still, you know, elderly people. But I'm afraid I'm, I go and slightly scratch at the wound. I'm a, probably a bit of an irritation sometimes to people. Because you I question. Won't, well, I do question and I won't accept... Uh, I mean, I did a big tour of Greece when Those for Love came out in Greek. And quite often there was somebody in these audiences who would say... Uh, why, are you, why are you writing about this? This is too recent for you to write about. And I said, so how recent is it? And they say, well, 70, only 70 years, you see. Well, you're, you see, you, you laugh because you agree with me and I'd look at yeah. them. And I was expecting, wow. you know, on the sort of 12th um, presentation I gave, there was always somebody who intimated that I was treading on this fresh ground. And were and they I'd older? Say, Is it fair to say they'd be yes, the older Yes, it was generally yeah. the older people. And I would say, you know, 70 years, that's, that is, you've waited long enough. You know, you mm. should be able to confront your history rather than just bury it. Um, so I was quite adamant about that with them because I think if you're ashamed, then you have to look at the reason that you're ashamed. Yes. And, uh, you know, much better out than in, you know. Absolutely. There's always interesting it. stuff under those rocks, isn't there? There's always something. I agree. So that's, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. There's a lot of things under the rocks here. Yeah. So I go around kind of just gently pushing at rocks to see if there's anything lurking there that uh, might need to be freed up a bit. Um, that's fascinating, though, that you... It's not just... You're, you're not just exporting a, a version of Greece to us, you are also selling your books about Greece to the Greeks as well. That's interesting. I hadn't realised that was the case. Yes, I mean, that's, that sort of began with my first book, The Island, um, mm. you know, which was set on this little leper colony island very close to the mainland. And, you know, case in point, really, they, a few tourists used to go there, but very much the presentation of this island, Spinalonga, was that it was a Venetian fortress that had been turned into a sort of settlement by the Turks. And then, you know, for a few years was used as a hospital, but it was very much, that was the tail end of the description. Um, mm. But they hadn't, they were slightly ashamed of it in, in their bay. Um, they didn't talk about it much. They didn't promote it. Um, and they went, you know, quite, they embraced this book. In, mm. immensely and you know made a tv series out of it um and i think Is because right? i was an because yeah because i was an outsider i had not that i didn't have don't have respect for taboo but if i don't even know the taboo is there yes you have permission then i i go oh yeah. here it is here's a book about these leprosy patients and they went oh right okay thank you very much and they read it and um you know they absolutely loved it which was very fortunate yes, um, yes. for me because they could have felt the other way. 
So, you, so The Island was your first absolute, you know, that was your first book. It was a massive, massive hit, obviously, in Greece, over here as well. You've just finished Those Who Are Loved. That's out now. Do, do you have a favourite? Do you have one that you look at with more affection? You know, much like I look at my dog with more affection than my children. Do, do, you, have one, <laughs> do you have one that you just think, oh, that, that's the favourite? Right? Well, you see, I was going to say that I look at each book I've written as though they're my children and I love them all equally. Yeah. But now you've admitted you uh, like come your, on. your One dogs. of them's got to be the dog. So, One of them's got to be the dog. Okay, <laughs> my, my dog actually is, is this latest one. Great. Because I put my heart and soul into it. Um, I researched it more or less for a decade. Um, the character, the protagonist I don't call her a heroine because that suggests you know she's the good person who does everything well and right she's a protagonist she's a woman who has faced uh, you know real dilemmas who's had to take actions that she bitterly regrets later on um, takes the consequences with her lives with various secrets and and stigma um, I feel she's to me, you know, you do get pretty close to your characters when you're writing them, particularly your sort of central character. And if, as a woman writer, this character Themis was sort of became, you know, right, got right under my skin. So, yes, I would say those who are loved is my dog. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Which is one way of putting it. Good. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, hoping yeah. you're a dog. So I think, you know, as a writer, you always want to feel that what you're doing now is better than what you did the last time. You want to still be learning, and it is, you know, unlike being a tennis player, there must be a peak at, let's say, 30, 35, if you're Federer. Um, mm. and, but as a writer, I think you can keep striving to, to get better, to tell a better story, create more emotion, uh, yes. all of those things. So I, I hope those who are loved is, is my dog. Okay, well, I think it's, 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 I was about to make some terrible, it's a, it's a beautiful dog, no, I can't, it's a dog I'd cuddle, no, that doesn't work, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the metaphor there, I love uh, those who are loved, I think it's a, it's a wonderful book, it's full of passion, and the, the research pours off the page, but the characters are fantastic, Themis is, I mean, gosh, early on, I, I realised what I was in for early on when, I don't want to give anything away, but something fairly terrible happens to her and a, a friend of hers, and I just thought, wow, this is this is not Catherine Corelli's Mandolin. There's something else going on here, and it is no disrespect Aww. to that book, but this is it's a magnificent book, Victoria, and I really, yeah. really I like do, it. I love Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Of you course, know, I'm a fan yes. of it. I'm, I really yeah. am, and uh, you know that has its very tragic moments. I think so. Yeah, yes. you know, but it, it it always felt slightly Disney, whereas this feels this feels very real and and somehow more intriguing and compelling yeah, it's, it's a really I, great read thank you thank you i don't spare the reader any pain i don't think i mean i give i hope i give the reader a a sort of resolution um mm. and hope at the end because ultimately you know the, the title is taken from a very famous greek poem um which is about the death of a young man in a demonstration and okay. the mother of this young man has him in her arms as he dies. And mm. she's lamenting this terrible, terrible loss. And then she promises him that, you know, he will have a kind of immortality. And the line in the poem says, you know, those who are loved shall never die. 
So I've sort of given half a title in a way, but that's what the book is about, really, that if, you, if you've been loved, uh, your memory will always live on. So there is a lot of pain in the book, but there is this great sort of hope at the end of it. That is a beautiful sentiment, Victoria, and it is a really, really beautiful book. I cannot recommend it enough. Victoria Hislop's Those Who Are Loved is out now. Now, I'm sure that you've been diving back into your favourite novels over the past few months, all this comfort reading that's been going on. If you look in the top ten of books that have been selling recently, it's all comfort reading. It's a good reason as well. So have you ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your favourite novels? Well, we asked author of The Invisible Girl and Then She Was Gone, the fabulous Lisa Jewell, just what her writing requirements are. I need a clean slate uh, in order to start writing so which is why I write in the afternoon because if I started writing in the morning I'd have everything hanging over my head of all the things I needed to do that day so I um, I like to just like get the black pen through my to-do list and get as much done um, before I start writing as I possibly can um, get my housework done reply to all my emails um, and only when I feel like I've, I've achieved enough on my to-do list um, do I feel comfortable and ready to start writing? So that's when I start writing. But I've got nothing else to do. <clears throat> I haven't got to the point of needing alcohol to to keep me going while I'm writing. Um, and I, well, it depends if it's summer, I'll drink water while I'm writing. In the winter, I'll drink like loads and loads of Earl Grey tea. Um, and yeah, one one coffee a day as well. Well, my 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 UK editor tends to read my drafts. Um, and that's about the yeah I think that I went through with my early books I always used to give them to friends to read because I was so insecure and unsure about everything and I needed people to tell me it was all going to be all right um, but now I'm old and I've written loads and loads of books I'm much more confident in my ability to put a first draft together by myself um, but I do like to give it to my editor before I've really, really polished it up just in case there's anything glaringly wrong with it that I should bear in mind before I start doing doing the final polish. Uh, so yeah, but nobody else anymore, nobody else anymore. If I finish a book on a Friday, which is my um, traditional day of the week where I break my, my, dry, my dry nights of the, of the midweek, um, with a, a, stop, a stiff vodka tonic, then that would be awesome to finish a book on Friday because then I could have a vodka tonic to celebrate. Um, otherwise, I would probably, yeah, just a, a glass of champagne at the next available opportunity. I think, yeah, 18 books down the line, you feel sort of slightly less emotional and celebratory every time you finish a book. Um, a bit more business-like about it, so uh, maybe I should start celebrating again and crying. Lisa, yes, I reckon you should definitely start doing that. Books are a celebration. They are, they are, they are. Uh, right, well, that's it. That's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, next time, we'll be back with more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, my name's Tom Price. See you soon. Happy reading. Happy reading.